All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. It's great to see all of you, and uh, it's, it's a joy to come here with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing in our Empty Throne series, and you can turn uh, to the book of Judges. We're going to pick up in Judges chapter 2, verse 6 uh, this morning, and so hopefully you've got your Bible with you. If you do, uh, turn it open to that or pull out your phone and, and scroll to the app or, or whatever you need. Uh, we will have it on the screen, but one of the things we're really emphasizing in this series is, um, is the importance of, of Bible ownership, Bible familiarity. So, uh, so you can turn there, Judges chapter 2 in your Bible. Man, this morning, uh, what I wanted to look at, and, uh, and the, main, uh, the main thing that we want to wrestle with is the significance in the gospel, not just in our own lives, but, but the ripple effect that that has. And so uh, it was interesting in having conversations this morning. Uh, you guys don't realize this, but when I'm talking to you down in the cafe, I'm really doing like sermon research as we're, as we're talking. And it was funny in how many of the conversations, how much uh, the significance of legacy uh, played into the conversation. So, so we have a personal faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ that affects our life, but, but growing in our maturity helps us to realize that it's not, it just doesn't impact us, that, that if we're living our life for Jesus, that, that it has impacts on, on other people. If we have kids, it impacts our kids. If we have, if we have friends or family members, if there's, if there's co-workers, if there's people uh, that maybe we mentor, that people that, we, uh, that look up to us, right, that the way that we live our life as, as Christians is going to have a direct impact on how they live their lives as Christians. And so, uh, so there's always a, there's these layers of effectiveness of what the gospel does. The gospel changes our life. The gospel changes the lives of all those that interconnect with us. And so we're going to kind of look at those two layers as we dig into Scripture uh, this morning, the personal piece and the legacy piece. Because the reality is that, that many of us are here this morning because there was somebody in our life who demonstrated that, that faith was important. It might have been a parent. It might have been a grandparent. It might have been a loved one. But there was somebody who, in your life, you saw them and you saw, wow, they, they really seem to to know and to love God, and, and I want that, even if I don't know what that is. And so your first steps into the church were probably because somebody that you knew and cared about drew you there. You saw what it was doing in their life, and it, and it drew you in, right? So we can, we can connect with that, that there's a significant piece of, of walking with Jesus means that it should have this kind of tractor beam effect. Uh, I was reading in the news this morning, they just found this new super mega massive black hole, hole on, the, on the outer edges of the galaxy, right? And, uh, and it's, uh, it's gigantic. And, and a black hole, you guys know what a black hole is, right? It just kind of sucks everything. Even light can't escape it. It's just, just pulled in. And so that's what, uh, that's our goal, right? That's what we want the gospel to be like in our life. It's this just black hole that's just drawing. Anybody that gets in within the event horizon of our lives gets sucked into the gospel, uh, that's, that's, that's a picture of where we're trying to go with this. So let's pray. Uh, we'll dig into the book of Judges, and we'll see what it has to show to us today, not only about our personal lives, but, but the legacy and the impact that it leaves. Father, we come uh, this morning with expectation, and we come with excitement. We love opening up your word. We love trying to, to understand and to know you better, God. And it would be our, our sincere desire not just to save ourselves uh, by the skin of our teeth, Lord, but, but to be someone who's saved and then used by you to impact many other people's lives, God. I pray that we would have a vision that, uh, that goes far beyond our own life and well-being, but that, that extends into all those uh, for whom uh, we have influence, God, that you would, you would use us in that way. Teach us something about that today. Help us to, to set our eyes on, on all that you would have us do uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Judges chapter 2. If you were here last week, we did uh, 
Judges chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 2, verse 5, and it was really an introduction, and what it showed us was uh, this, this idea of half-hearted obedience, that the, God had sent the nation of Israel, he pulled them out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience, and finally they're getting to go into the promised land that he's prepared for them, and the question is, are they going to do what he's called them to do? He calls them to go and to take the land and claim the land, and what we find in chapter 1 is it says they did it kind of right? <laughs> that it was half-hearted obedience, which ultimately God identified as disobedience. He said, you did not obey me. You failed in your mission that I laid out before you. And so that sets the scene, that sets the tone for everything that we're going to see in the book of Judges. Now, in chapter 2, what we get is basically a second introduction. So if you guys ever read a book where you're, you open up the book and there's a, a foreword by somebody who's not even the author, right? And then you get into a preface, and there's an introduction, and after a while, you're like, man, I'm halfway through this book, and I haven't even gotten to chapter one yet, right? So that's kind of what the book of Judges is like. It started with this idea of half-hearted obedience to kind of set the tone, and now in chapter two, what it does is it sets up, okay, here's the pattern. This is what you're going to see. This is, uh, a good preacher will say, hey, here's where we're going, and then he'll take you there, and that's what they do in the book of Judges. It, it says, hey, this is what you're going to see play out, and so it lays out this cycle of disobedience and the effects of it, and then for the next 11 weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at specific examples of this exact thing happening. But, but this kind of sets the pattern and shows what we should expect to see in the book of Judges. And so let's begin in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, Now when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Now you might say, wait a minute, didn't chapter 1 begin with after Joshua died? Right. So, so it just reinforces the fact that chapter 1 was an introduction, and now we're coming into another. It's like an introduction from a different angle, from a different layer. So you're like, wait a minute, Joshua's back alive? I thought he was dead. What's going on here? Right. It's, it's kind of two different introductions to the same book. And so it begins by saying, yeah, Joshua... He really did die. That did happen, right? But he lived to be 110. Did you ever think about that? Like, when you think about Joshua walking around the walls of Jericho and the walls tumbling, I picture this young, burly, not unlike myself, muscular guy, right? That's like, well, this dude was old, right? Shows the, the faithfulness of God throughout his whole life. You know, 110 years in, he was doing powerful things for the Lord. So, so that in and of itself sets this picture of legacy, right? So they buried him, verse 9, within the boundaries of his inheritance, in timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then look at this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So let's just think about that for a minute. That Joshua and his generation knew the Lord, but the generation, they didn't know him. And they knew the facts about the Lord, right? They knew, all right, yeah, I know that God brought brought our people out of Egypt. I know I heard about parting of the Red Sea. I heard about, I heard about the battles early on for Jericho. I heard about wondering. I, so they knew the facts, but they didn't know God in a personal way, in a love relationship, in an experiential kind of way, right? Uh, I, I, I can claim to know a lot of things about our president, about President Obama, right? I might, I might know a lot of where he came from. I know his background, his history. I might know some of the things he's done as a president, but I can't claim to know him as a person, right? 
If, 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 if he was here today, he'd be like, I don't know that guy. <laughs> I've never met that guy, right? Like, we don't have that sort of relationship. I haven't been able to sit down with him and understand his motivations and, and why he does the things that he does. And it's the same way with God. They might have known some things about God. They might have had a picture of who he was, but they didn't know God. And this was, was bad news. And God just keeps directing me to this and showing me this over and over and over again, uh, that the really significant thing is knowing God. That at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, there'll be those that come to me in the last day and they'll say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do these miracles? Didn't we do these signs and wonders and these works? And they'll say, away from me. I never knew you, right? So whatever we're doing here this morning, whatever you're doing during the week, studying the Bible, praying, meeting with people, the whole purpose and the whole goal is to know God. And that's, that's the measuring stick. It's not like, did I check off every, uh, you know, I had a Bible reading chart and I checked off, I did it, I read through the thing. You know, that's great, that's good, that's the spiritual discipline. But the question is, did I learn anything about God? Did I actually get to know him? Do I feel like I know God better today than I did before? If not, then something's askew. Then we're, we're, we're missing what God wants us. He wants us to know him, right? Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. See, now, uh, the people of Israel came and, and God said, you'll have no other God before me, that, that I am your God and you are my people. Uh, but when they entered into the land, what they, what they entered into is the Canaanite people. And that's why God wanted to have all those people removed from the land, because he knew that if they remained there, that there would be this mixing of religions. The people of Canaan didn't say, hey, abandon your God. Uh, but what they really believed is that these local deities, there were local bales of like all these different areas that, that they served a local god just of their, their plains area or a god of the hill country or a god of this or that. And so they, they didn't say, hey, abandon your god. They said, no, your god sounds pretty cool. He, he's a deliverer god. He brought you out of Egypt. He's, uh, you know, he brought you through the desert. He's a warrior god. He gave you, you victory in battle. Like, yeah, that's, that's a good god. But now that you're here, uh, if you want to experience prosperity, then you've, you've got to pray to the local God as well. Don't forget your God. Just, just work in worship of our God as well with it, right? And so the main thing that Baal was responsible for and, and understood for was uh, he was a God of fertility. So human fertility producing offspring and fertility in the land, uh, seeing crops produced and everything. And so, and so worship of him was geared around those sort of things. And so, so it involved... Uh, when you went to the Temple of Baal to worship, uh, they had cultic uh, prostitutes were there. And then so, uh, so because they believed in, in reproduction and fertility, it was all connected into that. And so they interwove that. Um, and then coming out of that, sometimes there would be unwanted childbirth or unplanned childbirth. And so then there was, there was child sacrifice that was a part of it. That was part of their solution, right? They're like, hey, part of our worship is we'll just, you know, we have these un, unexpected pregnancies. We'll, we, we'll just offer them up, right, as this distortion of the first fruits offering of God. It was, it was horrible. It was deplorable. Uh, there was nature worship. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worshiped nature itself. And so they said, basically, if you want to be fertile and productive, then you've got to come and worship our gods. And the people of Israel fell for it. And we might look at it, and we might like be like, wow, phew. I'm glad, that's, I'm glad that's not around anymore. That's weird, right? Like going to a temple and bowing down to this, this false statue God. And man, we're not dumb enough to fall for that. But if you think about our society, if you think about 
what you see on display every day in the world around us, what do we worship, right? We worship, we worship uh, uh, sensuality, lust, these sort of things, like they work their way into our practice. And what's the result of that? These, these unexpected, unplanned uh, pregnancies, right? And then what do we do about that? Not we, Lord willing, right? But, but what is our culture doing? So, so the spirit of Baal really resides in a powerful way in our nation and in our culture right now. And the question is, for us as, as Christians, are we, are we going to bow down? Are we going to follow that same path of the world, or are we going to go a different direction? You guys follow with me on this? Yeah. Heavy, right? I didn't know Ezra was going to be heavy today. I thought this was going to be funny, but sometimes it's heavy, right? We go where the text leads us. Here's the interesting thing with, with the worship of Baal. Do you, were these people just like so excited about human reproductivity? Was that, was that like what got them going? Was it, were they so just passionate about seeing food spring up out of the earth? Was that like their, their reason for being? No, it wasn't that, right? It was, they wanted fulfillment, right? Said, hey, if I have a bunch of kids, then I'll have more people to work the land so I can be more prosperous. If, if the crops are really good this year, then I can store some, I can set some aside, and then my life will get a little bit easier. easier. And so, so they were really, they weren't pursuing those things. They weren't ends. They were, they were a means to an end. The ends, what they really wanted is, is they wanted to feel happy, and they wanted to feel uh, uh, pride of, of, man, I look what I produced. And they wanted to feel fulfillment, and they wanted to experience comfort and leisure. And so really, it's the same things that we pursue when we go after other things. But the thing is, Baal couldn't really provide those things. Baal had no power to provide that. It was, it was a false god, and so it was going to always leave them empty, and it was always going to come up short. And it's the same way with us. When we, when we pursue happiness and joy and purpose uh, outside of God, when we, tr- when we pursue rest and comfort outside of God, it's always going to come up short. It might feel good for a moment. It might appear to give us that, uh, temporarily, but these idols in our lives are always going to come up short. And so part of, our, part of being a follower of Jesus, part of being a Christian is, is to just acknowledge and recognize like, hey, all of us have idolatrous hearts. Our hearts gravitate towards idols. We might not call it that. We might not think of it that way, but that's the reality, that we try and seek fulfillment in our life in ways other than God, and we, and we reap the rewards of that. Let's continue on um, in, in verse 14. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which the fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so that section right there, that is a pattern that we see repeated over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's this cycle that continues on and on. The people will fall away from God. He allows them to experience uh, 
the, the weight of their sins, right? So they go away from God. They seek happiness other places. And God says, okay, if you want that, I'm going to let you feel the weight of what that feels like. And so other nations would come in and plunder them. He would remove his hand of protection over them. The people would cry out to God. They would say, God, please rescue us. God would send a judge in to save them. They would listen to the judge. They would do well, but then the judge would die, and they would revert back, and it says, and they would get even worse. And so throughout the book of Judges, we're going to see this, this cycle of diminishing returns, right? It's a downward spiral of, of, of they, they disobey God. Uh, God allows them to feel the consequence of it. He brings a judge. The judge redeems them, saves them, but then they turn back from God, and it gets worse, and it keeps spiraling down and down and down. Um, it's, it, it's a depressing cycle to see unfold, and as we'll see in the book of Judges, it gets worse and worse and worse, and it, and it looks really horrible. So the question we've got to look at when we look at this cycle is, do I see the same cycle playing out in my own life? Is there a reflection of this same thing in my experience? How is what the nation of Israel went through similar to what I go through in my, in my life? And, and, and if we're honest, all of us experience some, some form of this cycle, right? It begins with a, a falling away from God. Maybe it, it's, it's uh, we stop valuing gathering together at church. So, you know, something happens, we get, we get directed, we go a different direction, and before long we're like, man, I haven't been to church for like a month or two. Uh, maybe it's distractions, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't remember the last time I picked up my Bible and read it. Uh, you know, a weekend prayer life. Uh, you know, I, I was going to a small group for a while, but then I just got, the schedule got crazy, and I just kind of, I quit gathering together. Um, you start to lose interest in fellowship. So when you come in on Sunday morning, it's just like get in and get out, right? You don't want to you don't want to engage in a conversation with somebody. You don't you're you're not coming looking and say, "Wow, that that person they look a little bit down today. Let me go talk to them and see what's going on." Right? We devalue that. So there's, there's this falling away. That's uh, these things are all symptoms of this of this falling away. Has anybody ever experienced any of those things? I might be the only one, right? Just your pastor, right? Let me share with you, right, what I've gone through, right? And those things then, they, they lead to minor sins, right? So all of a sudden, we're not reading the Bible, we're not going to church, we're not in Christian fellowship, we're not, and then all of a sudden, sin starts to look more attractive because you're like, man, something's missing. I feel like something's missing in my life. I need to, I need to patch the hole. And so, and so we go to things, right, uh, and, and, and all these false things that promise us what we're missing, but they, they don't deliver on it. And so when we don't get it, either we repent and we go back or we go for even bigger sins. We say, all right, man, the hole's bigger than I realized. I got I to gotta go with something. And so it's this spiral of sin that we enter into. Now, the question is, when we go through that and God lets us feel the weight of our consequences and our sin, and then we cry out to God, that's the moment where the difference is made. Because if we, uh, in that moment, it says the people groaned because uh, they were under the weight of this persecution. Uh, it doesn't really say that they had this heart-deep, repentant tearing of their heart where they returned to the Lord, right? It's just like they, they started crying out to God, like, God, I'm in pain. Take away the pain. I don't want to be in pain anymore. And God, in his awesome grace and love and mercy, he listens to that cry. But listen, here's, here's the difference. There's two ways it can go when you get to that moment. If the crying out and the repentance is not genuine and heart-transforming, then the cycle will continue to spiral down. God will come in, he will provide a rescue, he'll provide a way out, he'll provide an outlet, and you'll come back, but then the next time you fall, it'll be a deeper fall. And you're like, man, I can't believe God rescued me, and then I just fell right back into the same thing again, and you start kicking yourself, and so the, 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 the spiral down is longer, the recovery is shorter, and it just kind of keeps going. But in that moment, when you cry out to God, if it's, it's, if it's real heart repentance, if it's, if it's transformation, if you're like, God... I don't want this anymore. I'm done with this. I'm finished 
with this. And, and really, if you get to that point of repentance, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you, right? <laughs> that, uh, that even repentance is a gift from God. But, but if he gives you that gift of repentance and you, and you cry out and you say, God, I don't want to do this anymore, then what you actually see is a reverse of the cycle. It doesn't completely end. It doesn't mean like you, you get to that moment and it's like, it's not like a do not, it's a do not pass a whatever. What's that thing in Monopoly? <laughs> go straight to go, right? Do not pass. It, it's not that, right? That's not what it is. But what, it's, it's a changing of the cycle. Now all of a sudden, instead of this downward spiral of destruction, we're in an upward spiral of sanctification. And it gets flipped on its head where, where we continue to recognize like, wow, this isn't right in my God, but in my life, God, but instead of going weeks or months without turning around, you might be like, wow, I, man, yesterday, I, I didn't pray at all yesterday. I got to remedy that right now, right? The, the, the falling away gets shorter, and, and the restoration gets more full, and we see more fully how Jesus fulfills the needs that we're missing in our life. And so what we find is that we're, that we're going up and up. And so the life of Christian sanctification, it doesn't look like just a straight line, but, but what it looks like is this. It's like a little bump, and then we go, and a little bump, and then we go. The cycle falling away is like, diminishing returns, right? And so what really matters is that moment when we become aware of our brokenness, because here's the deal. We're all broken. <laughs> we're all broken by sin. There's all, all of us, there's moments where we realize, man, God is perfect and holy and righteous, and, and I'm not there. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. And what you do in that moment when you realize that is what makes all the difference. Because of what Jesus has done we can enter into this, this upward spiral of sanctification where God blesses us and uses us more. Now, how is this possible? How is it possible that we can get out of this cycle? Well, let, let me show you the key to this. Verse 19, look, look what it says in verse 19. It says what? Whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers. But listen to this. Jesus is the perfect judge. What, what each of these judges that we're going to see throughout this book what they did imperfectly, Jesus did perfectly. And Jesus went in the grave, but he didn't stay there. He came up after three days, and he is living today. He's alive. And so we serve a judge who never dies. And that's how it's possible for us when we, when we receive salvation from him, when he's the one who restores us, and he's the one that brings us back to the Father. We never have to fall away because he never dies. And so there never comes an end to that cycle. It just continues on and on, and we can always return to him, and he's always rescuing. He's always leading us back to the Father. Praise God that we have a judge who will not die. He will never die. He will never lose influence over us. Now, what does this look like in our life? Uh, the, these things that we seek, last week we hammered the nail of forgiveness a lot, right? We looked at this idea of how does this make a difference in forgiveness? Well, if Jesus has forgiven us, and he lives on, and he continues to forgive us, then it empowers us to begin to process what it looks like to forgive others in our life. If, if we want to have purpose, we continue to look to our living judge who says, come, follow me. I will, I will take you on a path of, of service to me that will make a difference in the world, right? Then our purpose is found there instead of in our career uh, or in our hobbies or in our interests or other things that might claim to give us an identity but will ultimately fall short, right? That, that ultimately, when we apply the gospel, whatever the thing is that we're searching for, the answer is found at the cross of Jesus, and we, our work now becomes processing that. Whatever the thing is you're struggling with today, most of us walked in struggling with something, right? Loneliness, betrayal, identity, purpose, uh, these big questions of life. When we connect them to the cross, when we connect them to the gospel, when we understand how what Jesus accomplished actually fulfills those things, 
all of a sudden we begin to live a life with purpose and mission and direction. And it doesn't take us straight to the end, right? We don't uh, advance all the way to go, but it says, wow, okay, now I know where I need to set my course. Now I know where the compass needs to go and I'm going to start walking in that path and it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult, but now I know that I'm going in the right direction and I can begin to move forward. That's my prayer for each one of us today that we would, we would come to that place, set that course. Now let's come back to the, 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 second, the second thing. Um, which was, that's, that's how it impacts our life. How does it impact the generations around us, the ones that will come after us? How does it leave a legacy? How does understanding all of that transfer onto the people uh, that we have influence over? And, and, and a powerful place to see this is actually over in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so if you keep your, your bookmark or your finger in Judges 2 there, but you flip over, uh, we have to understand that Judges, uh, this book doesn't exist in isolation, it, it exists as, as the fruition of everything that God had done from the beginning of creation all the way through the Exodus, bringing the people out of Egypt. And, and if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew how it was all going to play out. And it's going to be creepy for you when you read this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see how much God knew exactly what it was going to look like in their lives and in our lives. So if you turned over there, look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Verse 1, he says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son, generations, right, legacy, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember what I said Baal promised? What did Baal promise? He said, Baal, Baal said, I'm going to give you multiplication, right? I'm going I'm to multiply your home. I'm going to give you fertility. I'm going to give you a land that produces crops. What did God say back in Deuteronomy 6? He said, if you listen to me, if you obey me, that's exactly what I'm going to give you, right? That your days may be long, that you may multiply greatly, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them in the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How all-inclusive is this meant to be, right? Every aspect of our life is meant to be filled uh, with this idea of loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts and all our minds and all our strength. And it flows through everything. And listen to what he says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you the great and good cities that you did not build, the houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now, here's what's fascinating. 
God said, hey, once you get in there and I give you all this awesome stuff, I'm going to give you olive groves. Like, can you imagine this? Like, if all of a sudden you found out some distant relative that you never knew about owned a vineyard in California and you go out there to Sonoma County and you look at these hundreds of years old wine uh, vineyards, right, and, and grapes. And, like, can you imagine how long it would take to do that from start? And God said, hey, I'm just going to give this to you. I'm just going to flat out give you as an, as an object of grace. And be careful, once I give you all this great stuff, that you don't forget about me. Well, the sad part was, Israel never even made it to that point. <laughs> they never even got to the point where they got to enjoy the fruits of the vine so much that they were tempted. But it does point out this fact that there's two ways we can go wrong. Sometimes the trials and the struggles will pull us away from God. Sometimes the comfort and the blessings will pull away from God because we'll begin to think that we deserved it, that we're entitled to it. Somehow we'll trick ourselves into thinking that we were the one who produced all this goodness. If you're here today and you're blessed, if you're in a season of blessing in your life, if you're in a season where you're like, man, you know, honestly, things are going good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Don't let that be the moment that you fall away from God. Don't start to think that somehow your goodness is what produced that. Maybe you're just in a season where God has blessed you beyond what you could deserve, and, and the moment you begin to forget that is the moment that you begin to fall away and enter into this negative cycle. He says in verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you've tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in a time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, listen, for our good always. He gave the law for our good. He gave the law to bless us so that we could remain in the blessing that he might preserve us alive, and we are as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we're able and careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. And so this passage, Deuteronomy 6, shows us a couple of really powerful ways of, of, of this question of how do we pass what we learn? We're going to go in, we're going to take the land, but how do we pass that on to our kids? How do we make sure that our kids continue in this following after the Lord? And there's, there's three things that I want to point out to you. Number one is that our faith must be real. It's got to be experienced. It's got to be wholehearted. What does he say? Love the Lord with all your heart. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord with all your heart, right? Why is that? Because our kids can tell if we have a divided heart. Uh, the people that we're working with, the people that we have influence over, they can tell whether our allegiance to God is wholehearted or if it's lip service. They can tell if we're just going to church to make appearances and then we walk out the door and we don't live our life in in connection, that, that the next generation is watching to see, does this, is this wholehearted, does, has this grabbed our whole heart, or is it, is it just something that we do? Second thing, faith has to be practical. It has to affect our everyday life. There's no separation of, of church and, and our life, right? That it says when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, every aspect of your day that, that, that our love for God should influence everything that we do. Our culture is obsessed with this idea of, of separation of church and state. Hey, you can do whatever you want. You can worship whatever you got. You can believe whatever you want in your own private time. But when you come into the public sector, you need to set all that aside. 
that's impossible, right? Our religious belief uh, dictates what we think is right, what the purpose of life is, how we live our life, the decisions we make. How are we supposed to set that aside when we go out into the, the real world, right? It's impossible to segment our heart out from, from what God is. And our kids are going to see whether that's true. And the people that we work with are going to see whether that's true. And the, and the people that we have influence over and the people in the church, they're going to see whether our belief affects our everyday life. We call it gospel fluency. Are you good at understanding how the gospel affects every challenge, every struggle, uh, every hurdle that you face? Do you understand how Jesus makes a difference? Or do you just kind of throw up a Hail Mary prayer like, man, God, I'm in a mess, and I have no idea what Jesus dying on the cross has to do with this, but I hope that you can do something for me, right? Then God becomes a genie in the bottle. Then it becomes like, hey, I just got to insert some prayer coins, and hopefully a good prize comes out the bottom, right? But that's not how it works, right? The gospel is a, it's a framework for understanding our life and understanding how it's, how it's meant to, to lead us forward. Do you, do you, does the gospel influence you this way? Does Jesus and, and what he's done, does it have an impact on your everyday life in this kind of way? The third thing is, is this connection between doctrine and personal experience. That, that for us, our faith is not just a list of things. Uh, God the Father uh, is the creator and Jesus the Son came and died, right? It's not just that. It's we live it out. Let me show you by example. Let's say, let's say uh, uh, you had a father who was, uh, was really into sailing. And by, by saying that he was really into sailing, that means that uh, he would buy sailing, sailing magazine. That exists, right? There's some sort of sailing magazine. Right? He would, you would see him read sailing magazine. You'd see him do some internet research on, on sailboats. He would have some little glass bottles with sailboats in his, in his office. And so, so if that's what your father was like, then you might have this warm spot in your heart towards sailing that you can't quite explain but especially at the point at which he passes on, then, then when you, you might even subscribe to Sailing Magazine just as a remembrance of your father. And, uh, and, and you might have, you know, somebody talks about sailing, be like, oh, yeah, my dad used to be really into sailing. Let's, you know, you might have an interest, but is it going to be your heart's passion? Is it going to be your love? Probably not, right? But if your dad loves sailing and from your earliest memories, uh, remembrances, he had a sailboat. And, and as young as you can remember, you remember being out on that sailboat. You remember sailing with your father. You remember the feel of the breeze against your face. And you remember, uh, you know, how to tack the thing. I don't know anything about sailing, so I'm going to make some stuff up here, right? But, but if, you're, if your father passed that passion on to it, if it was experiential passion, if you were there on the boat with him, then the odds are as you grow up, you're probably going to want to buy a boat of your own, right? And you might even grow to know even more about sailing than your father. You might want to get into the Navy. You might, you know, it be, might become an even greater passion for you than it was for your father because he taught you through experience. And so if we want to pass down our faith to the people that we have influence over, it's got to be our passionate experience, and we've got to invite them in. It can't be this closed door of like, man, something mysterious is going on there. We've got to show them the love that we have. That's how we pass it on. Is our faith consistent? Is it real? Is it personal? We've got to be all in, or I guarantee you the people that are connected to us, our children, our friends, our co-workers, people that look up to us, they're not going to be all in if we're not all in. Well, this passage continues on, and, 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 and ultimately uh, in verse 20, we're going to wrap up by this, like looking at what is it, what can we learn about God in this? We've looked at our place and what we're to do and how that can have an impact. What can we learn about God from this passage? Look at verse 20. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, 
that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Getting into chapter 3 here. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took for themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now when we look at this, we might, we might uh, depending on our inclination towards God, we might say, man, I heard angry, I heard jealous, uh, I heard, you know, it seems like God's vengeful, and, and we might come away with the wrong picture of God, but, but why was God angry with his people? He's angry because he loved them, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a song by the Lumineers, and uh, there's a lyric that, that I've always been captivated. I always share this at weddings, right? The opposite of love is indifference, they say in this song, right? If I don't, if I don't love somebody, I just don't care about them, right? Sometimes anger comes because we love some, someone so much. Sometimes we're jealous. Hey, if I, if I see some guy talking to my wife a little bit too friendly, I'm going to feel jealous. Why? Because I love my wife. I'm not doubting her faithfulness, but I'm like, hey, I, I need to go over there and I need to remove that guy from the situation, right? Because I love her. If I didn't love her and I didn't care, I'd be like, oh, yeah, maybe he'll take her. You know what I mean? Like, God gets angry because of his love. But look at God. Look at how, how, how faithful he is. And we talked this last time about this tension. What will win out, God's judgment or God's love. And what we see is God, God doesn't judge his people. He says, hey, I wanted to give them this great gift, but, but they're, because of their disobedience, they've disqualified themselves from receiving the fullness of the promised land in the way that I wanted to give it to them. But guess what? I'm not done with them. I'm not writing them off. I'm not finished with them. I'm going to use this. Okay, this is the mess you've made. Okay, what can I do here? I can, I can use this to test you to see whether you'll be obedient to me. And I can teach you about war. I can teach you how to, how to fight. And, and I can teach you how to, to be strong and mighty. And so God does this in our lives. Everyone, there's not a person in here who hasn't screwed up, right? Everyone in here has made mistakes. But we serve a God who comes, and when we make mistakes, he says, hey, all right, I'll pick up the pieces. Wherever you're at today, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what you've done, no matter what the mistake is, if today you will tear your heart and you will say, God, I repent. I'm going to set a course of following you. Wherever you are, wherever you are, doesn't matter. He will say, okay, let's pick up the pieces. Let's go forward from here. There's a path towards your redemption that's been laid out by Jesus Christ, and you will begin to follow it. No one is too far gone to come to the Father. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this passage, in the midst of showing your judgment and your anger, towards the peoples also shows your love, your compassion, your endless grace and mercy and, and, and forgiveness. God, if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us find ourselves in this downward spiral. Uh, we, we find this, this, this cycle of disappointment. Some of us have experienced the grace and the mercy of, of beginning to experience the spiral of sanctification, that we, we were on a downward spiral, but then we gave our life to you, and now, 
Now we still, we're not who we want to be, but the falls are shorter and, and the moments of you raising us up are greater and we can see the progress that we're growing. We're becoming more and more like you and we can see the impact and the legacy. I pray that that would continue, Father. I pray that we would continue to have a great impact on the people around us, uh, that we would, we would love you with all of our heart in a way that shows them the passion that we have for you, that they they could, we invite them in to experience the love that we have for you. Lord, if we're here and we're like, man, that sounds great, but I don't, I don't have that love. That It's not a passion. It's not excitement. God, I pray that you would give us the gift of, of a passion for you. I pray that as we draw near to you, that you would reveal yourself more and more, that you would wrap your arms around us, that you would, you would show us all that you want to do through us and for us, God. And I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, Maybe they're at a moment of bottoming out today. Maybe they came in this morning feeling like they've hit the bottom. I pray that today would be the day that they would repent and they would know and they would believe from this passage that you are a loving God, that you want to welcome them back into relationship with you, that that you want to to show them uh, your love as displayed at the cross through Jesus Christ and that they would receive that free gift of forgiveness and salvation that you want to offer them. And they would know that they don't have to clean themselves up. They don't have to write the ship. All they have to do is place their faith in you. And if they do that, you will set them on a course of meaning, purpose, hope, and fulfillment. Lord, if there's any here that are that in that place today, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would submit to you and receive salvation. God, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.